Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, Stephanie Land discusses her path from working as a maid to earning a journalism degree and later writing about the working poor. She's interviewed by Rachel Schneider, co-author of The Financial Diaries. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Hello, Stephanie. I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation with you. I have to say, I just loved your book. I really did. Thank you. Yeah, and so I'm looking forward to being able to hear more from you about why you wrote it, how the process worked for you, and and all of the um, learnings that you have from this life experience. So I think what would be a great way to start is for you to share with the viewer um, what the basic story is. What is this book about? Well, it's about a time that I lived with my then three-and-a-half-year-old daughter uh, in a studio apartment while I was cleaning houses full-time. Uh, and I think the bulk of the book focuses on that time period when we lived in a very small environment that I could barely afford and then spent most of my time in these really large houses um, cleaning them on my hands and knees for the most part. And, yeah. um, and a lot of the disenchantment process that I went through in realizing that the big house on the hill doesn't necessarily mean happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that comes through um, really strongly and powerfully. You know, this book, um, it's, it's, for, it's a lot about poverty, right? It's a lot about what it means to struggle without enough money. But I felt like what came across so strongly was also very much a book about emotion and about... Um, how it feels to be struggling. And, you know, and so we'll get to the financial challenges. I think it's like there's a lot to say there and to understand. Um, but the book is a lot about your emotional journey, right? And so I wonder if you could share with us a little bit more about um, how that time felt for you. Uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is definitely bewilderment, um, mm -hmm. just not really understanding what was going on. Um, but I also felt uh, very marooned and isolated yeah. and um, very alone, and alone in a way that is kind of all-encompassing. Like, I, I didn't have anything to fall back on. Um, and through all of that process, I think, I mm -hmm. um, learned to rely and depend on myself, um, which was empowering and strengthening but also very hard um i'm still that way <laughs> you know like, um the only person i have to depend on is, is really myself um and so i think you know that has caused me to not ask for help from others um which has been detrimental i think um <laughs> and i need to constantly remind myself that like i can actually ask for help but a lot of that time period was um was was I think disappointing and um, and and kind of sad at times, um, right. but strengthening, strength building, I guess. Yeah, I'm realizing we should probably go back and um, you know um, and say more about like you know how you got to that place. So you um, by by the time we meet you in the book, you're already a mom. And you, I mean, you, I have to read the first sentence of the book because I think it's just such a powerful way to start. And, um, and you, you write, my daughter learned to walk in a homeless shelter. And um, 
for me, like that sentence is right, like immediately about, like it's learning to walk, right? It's mm -hmm. it's not being stationary. It is mobile, but at the same time, you you know, it took um, some hardship to get there. Um, so, and maybe that's what the loneliness is about, right? So, maybe you could share a little bit more about how you found yourself in that place. Well, uh, I got pregnant, <laughs> obviously, right, um, and you know, at the time of deciding to continue with that pregnancy, mm -hmm. um, I assumed that I would be supported by my right. family, um, yeah. by my daughter's father, um, because that I couldn't imagine not being supported. I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine being in that place, uh, in a homeless shelter, uh, and like that didn't even seem like a possibility to me at the time. Um, but throughout the next year and a half, I guess it was, um, by the time Mia was eight months or so, uh, seven or eight months, um, I had been in an incredibly emotionally abusive relationship with her dad and was very depressed <laughs> from that. Um, and our relationship was finally toxic enough that I couldn't stay. Um, and he didn't want us to stay uh, where he was living. So I went and lived with my uh, dad and his wife, um, and that didn't work out either. And so ended up in a, a homeless shelter because that was really the only place that I felt I could depend on because I was already going back into that, like, I have to do this on my own. I can't keep bouncing us around and asking uh, for places to stay. Um, a homeless shelter uh, was stability to me, and it was at least mm -hmm. putting me on a path to um, having our own place. Right. You know, um, it is so hard to ask for help and to go in and ask for housing to then go and ask for other forms of assistance, it's really difficult in so many ways. Can you talk more about what's broken in that system? Oh, uh. <laughs> I realize it's a big question, so I'll have some follow-ups, but, you know, I think it'd be useful to hear where you start. Uh, well, I, I think, I mean, just, there's so many things. Um, in just the application process. I mean, uh, if you think about it, uh, you need a computer and you need a printer. You need access to the internet. You need a working phone um, because a lot of times they'll call you and have an appointment through your telephone. Um, and those appointments, uh, the recertification or just a application process are during the workday for most people. So you have to block out you know, a good chunk of your afternoon to make that appointment, um, you need to re you need to bring uh, proof of how much your car is, uh, how much your rent is. You need to bring a utility bill uh, to prove your address. Um, these are all things that, to most people, you know, really wouldn't be much of anything. But like, if you're in transition, like I was, um, if you might not have a utility bill to bring. Oh, and, um, and then there's also a lot of other catches where uh, you need to have a job before you apply for childcare. And so 
if you already have a job, then you already need childcare. And then, so then you have to go through that application process um, while you're trying to figure out what to do with your kid while you're at work or applying or um, there's, there's so many things that I think um, most people don't even think about because it's, it's normal to them to fill out an online form. And, but for a person uh, with nothing and no means, um, it's hard to get to a library or you know, another place, and especially when your main focus is trying to work. Right. Yeah, and um, and in addition to just how logistically challenging it is, it sounded like there are also tons of places where the system that's in place makes assumptions about the people who need help in the first place. Right. That that pile on to the pain of having to go and ask for help in the first place, um, and make it even harder by assuming that you like you you wrote um, about a class you had to take at some point. So like you should share that story. Yeah, I had to learn how to approach landlords about my rent voucher. Um, at the time, I was on a, um, I was using a program called TBRA, which is tenant-based rental assistance, and then that is puts you on a pathway to a Section Eight voucher. Uh, Section Eight is a, it's like a unicorn <laughs> of all the vouchers that they have. Um, many people aren't even accepting new applicants because the wait list in some places is eight to ten years long um, and uh, a lot of landlords don't like rental vouchers um, because the money comes at mid-month or something um, but there's a lot of stigma involved um, landlords assume that if they have some kind of rental voucher then they're going to trash the place or they're gonna leave it incredibly dirty or there will be multiple families living and I mean all the stigmas surrounding um, low-income families are held in that rental voucher um, and so the class was uh, learning kind of a sales pitch of how to approach a, a landlord with it um, and people in the class spoke up and, and said like you know, this isn't how it works. Uh, there's totally, there's so much discrimination. Um, and he didn't really even like discuss that with us. It was just all like looking at the positive points and in, in uh, trying to get a home with this voucher. Right. You, you write at some point about um, one of the social workers that you, our caseworker who you dealt with through this process, saying you were lucky, right? Because there was a moment when there was a housing that was available that, you know, all the choices are bad, and among all the choices, this one you were lucky to get, right? And I, um, that, you write about in the book as being a noteworthy moment, like, how am I in this situation ever going to think of myself as lucky? But I wonder if you feel like that's consistent with this storyline of also needing to come to classes and also sort of being treated as less than because or not as knowledgeable or dirty in some way or um, because you just in fact need a little bit of help in this moment. Yeah, I, I think there were a lot of assumptions um, that I was a drug addict or, you know, um, 
trying to think that I wouldn't be able to do or complete normal house cleaning tasks um, that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I had a curfew of, you know, 10 p.m. Um, in the transitional housing apartment we lived in. I wasn't, I had to ask to have overnight visitors um, and I had to report my income constantly. Um, I had to share my budget with people. Um, I was constantly um, checked in on and um, had to report anything that was going on um, within, you know, my job and daycare and um, very much felt like I was kept tabs on um, in a way that is degrading and uh, not normal to me <laughs> at oh. all. No, so. and, right, and seem, to me it seems counterproductive to the whole, what, what I want to think the motivating vision behind public assistance of any kind should be, which would be to help somebody up, help somebody move on to the next phase. And yet it really comes across, and you're telling so powerfully that, um, that you're checked in on all the time and yet still feel lonely. I still feel like moving yourself up or out of this situation is totally on you. Yeah. Well, it wasn't like a checking in on, like, are you okay? No. It was, okay, we gave you this, and now you need to prove that you still need it again and again and again, like once a month. Um, and, you know, the, I mean, they were just recently trying to pass legislation that um, food stamp recipients would have to turn in paperwork monthly to show that they had worked 20 hours a week. Um, and it's just things like that that um, boggles my mind. I mean, it, but it seems like um, not only are we getting, as poor people, uh, you know, housing or food or uh, childcare, it seems like um, it's a gift that we have to keep proving that we deserve. Um, and. It's a, it's a horrible thing to do to someone. <laughs> yeah, so. uh, right, horrible, and, and I think counterproductive. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, especially with the, the paperwork to prove that you were working 20 hours a week for mm -hmm. the, um, when they were working through the SNAP um, reform this year. Um, imagine how much time that would take just on the worker level um, for someone who works for uh, the Department of Health. Um, they would have to f hire new people just to handle this influx of paperwork. And in that shuffle, that paper could get lost. Um, and they even wanted to take away the benefits of a person if they didn't hand in that piece of paper for a year. So say a piece of paper gets lost and suddenly you don't have food for your family for an entire year. Um, and so it seems like they're not only asking you to prove that you deserve this help, they're kind of trying to backhandedly kick you off of it. So, um, it's it's um, I so when I think of a broken system, that's that's what I think of. Um, is it's a system that is set, setting you up to fail. I think so too, and I think it's important to shine a spotlight on the specifics of it because it's not until you hear the specific requirements like that you've just listed, right, needing to prove again and again how much you earn or needing to fill out forms again and again when you don't live a place where that's easy 
uh, it, those specifics makes it very real for those of us who've never had this experience and I think are really powerful and important to share. Um, you know, you, um, at the same time, and I, th I think that's one of the really powerful parts of your book. I also, though, think that, you know, you, through it all, seem to be able to maintain um, some idea that you could change it, right? And, and I'd love to hear more about that, like the, your process of maintaining hope, which is really hard in the midst of um, all of these kinds of challenges. So what do you attribute that to? How do you think you were able to keep thinking at all about the long term? Well, I mean, that was privilege. I mean, I mean that was um, me not growing up in that situation. I mean, that was me growing up as a white person in the suburbs. Um, and so my inner narrative was not, this is how my story ends. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it's going to get better eventually, because it has to, because, you know, that was my privileged position. Um, and so I think there was a lot of that. Um, but also, I, I, I wanted so much more for myself and especially for my daughter. Um, I wanted her to watch me pursue my dreams and succeed. Um, so I kind of held myself accountable to that as well. Um, but I, I mean, my family, um, you know, like my mom was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, you know, we're, we're not a wealthy family by any means, but mm -hmm. compared to someone who grew up in systemic poverty for generations, uh, they might not have had the same hope or even dreams. Um, so I think a lot of that was just me starting off at a, um, a more privileged position than, than many people do. It's interesting to hear you describe it that way because what also comes across in your book is the idea, you write at some point, I think, um, I'm going to pull the exact sentence because um, it resonated so strongly to me. You talked about um, the idea that even even dreaming seemed like something I couldn't afford. Oh, right? yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was pertaining to a better place to live. Um, but it was also that I didn't have time. Right. I had, like I would take breaks during homework to look on Craigslist for a different apartment for us to live in. Um, and even that seemed indulgent. So I, I had so much work to do between the actual work I got paid for and the invisible work I did, just domestic work, keeping things clean and then taking care of my kid and, um, and then all the schoolwork that I did. Um, it, I felt like there wasn't even time to dream about a house to live in on Craigslist. So, yeah, yeah, I can see that because that's the, you've just described multiple full-time jobs at once. Yeah, yeah, I had many jobs. So. Yeah, and then you know, applying for government assistance and keeping that going can be, you know, there were weeks that I probably spent five to ten hours a week making sure I had all the forms in place and correct and had all of my proof of income correct and um, like a lot of my income came from self-employment eventually um, and so it was hard to 
prove that I was doing that. I had to um, get copies of checks and notes from people I worked for saying that I did, in fact, work in their home. So, um, so yeah, I, I was busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds extremely busy. And yet, eventually, you did figure out how to dream for a bigger place, a, a nicer place, a safer place for you and your daughter. Um, tell us more about that. You, um, you did, it seemed like, have a clear vision for what you ultimately wanted. Did it feel clear to you at the time? Well, I, it was more a nagging thought mm -hmm. or, you know, I just always kind of heard in my head, like, this isn't what you wanted. Like, remember what you wanted? Um, because I had planned to move uh, to Missoula, Montana um, months before I found out I was pregnant with Mia. So I think that still um, beckoned, you know, that life called to me. I, I don't know. That sounds kind of cheesy. But, um, but I never wanted to attempt it because the stakes were too high and it was um, it was such a big deal and such a big dream for me. I didn't want someone to tell me that I couldn't have it or that I couldn't do it. Um, and so for the longest time, I didn't even think about it. So it was kind of a nagging thought. Um, and it took a lot to even try to talk about it or, you know, especially with Mia's dad because I had to get kind of his permission to relocate. Um, and that's just hard. Right. Yeah, so say more about that. Uh, well, I have two in two directions, and we can come back to one, to each of them in turn. But um, why Montana? Why did you, you – it just pulled you. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Alaska, um, and I moved out of Alaska with the intention to move to Montana somewhere uh, because I had read uh, – Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. And the way that he talked about Montana, I was like, okay, I can see myself living there. Because um, Alaska is like the ultimate place. I wanted to find something that was really close to Alaska. Um, and so I came down. I was staying in Washington in Port Townsend. Um, I just kind of thought that would be like a jumping pad to wherever I ended up in Montana. Um, and I went to a a uh, book signing by David James Duncan, who's my favorite living living author. Um, and he said he lived in Lolo, Montana, and sometimes taught at the University of Montana in Missoula. And so I was like, oh, okay, so I'm going to go to Missoula then. And um, started applying or filled out interest forms for the college there and was about to send in the application form when I found out I was pregnant with Mia. So... Um, I, that was delayed for six years. <laughs> so. Right, delayed, but it was always out there for you, that that's where you were headed. Yeah. Um, I I wanted to stay in that area because I wanted to be around my family. I wanted Mia to grow up with grandparents and aunts and uncles and big holiday dinners. And um, the more and more that seemed to not be happening, um, and the more I felt like my family was kind of turning their back on me, um, the easier it was to envision us moving to a place that I didn't know anybody. Right. Right. If you're going to be lonely at home, you might as well be lonely where you envision yourself being happier. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I kept meeting people who were from Missoula and just feeling like and a connection or like we were kind of alike in some way. Um, and 
I don't know. It got to the point where anybody that I was talking to that like I immediately felt drawn to, they had some kind of Missoula connection. So it was it was kind of weird like that too. Right. And has Missoula been what you thought it would be? How long have you been there now? I've been there uh, seven years. A little over like seven years. A spoiler alert for readers. Like <laughs> she does make it. Well, it's in my bio. So <laughs> I mean, right. that's, true. that's true. So I didn't just ruin it. <laughs> yeah. um, good. Yeah. So six years, you said. Seven years. Seven yeah. Years. Yeah. Been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great. I, I love the community there. There's a huge community of writers, mm-hmm. obviously. I Well, to me, that's obvious. Uh, maybe not to everybody else. But, um, and the... The university has been incredibly supportive. It was a it was a good decision. It proved to be a good decision. That's good. Um, and and how about writing? You you also seem to know you wanted to be a writer, or does that did that come about later? How did you know you wanted to write? Uh, that started like when I was ten. Uh, I had a fourth grade teacher who made us keep journals, and we had to write all these short stories. Like everything was writing. Um, and so I discovered that I, I liked it. And, um, I think after that, that was all I really imagined myself being. Um, but it was kind of in a, I'll grow up and be a writer someday. Growing up, meaning like in my fifties or like, I thought I'd settle down and become a writer at some point. Um, because, you know, ultimately, it's a career that doesn't pay very much. <laughs> so, uh, so I right. figured, like, I'd need some kind of day job, live, like, an interesting life, and then eventually settle down and start writing about it. Um, so that was my vision. Um, I just, I found a way to do it a little bit sooner, I guess. Right, right. You did live an interesting life quite early, in <laughs> yeah. a way. Right? Yeah, that's true. Um, not purposefully, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, the interesting life happened a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so tell tell us more about the process of writing this book. What was that like for you? Uh, boy, uh, I wrote it straight through. That was one thing that I did that was weird that I'm glad I did, but I don't know if I would recommend it. Um, I didn't look back at anything. I just had a one word file. I have an 11 inch MacBook Air that I wrote this whole entire book on. Um, and I now need glasses because <laughs> I think. Um, but no, I, I, I had a counter on this whiteboard that, you know, so I kept track of how many words I had written um, and wrote it pretty quickly in just a few months. Um, and because I, again, was uh, had a very privileged position in being able to do that, um, and and spent probably a year editing and revising it and reading it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So um, it was it was a good long year of of writing and editing and and living in that story. Right. And did it feel like you were going back to? I'm curious if it felt like. Um how it went back how it felt to go back and live in your story again memoir is such a particular thing right you're telling your own story but you're also reflecting on your story yeah um well i had to i had to quit my day job because <laughs> i'm uh i'm normally a freelancer and write about um economic justice mainly and to do that i need to pay attention to the news 
which I couldn't do anymore. <laughs> so, um, I kind of had to clear my plate. And, and if I wasn't writing, then I was looking at pictures or um, writing it out. I, I tried to do it um, almost completely from memory um, and didn't go back and read any blog posts or journal entries or anything like that. Um, I figured anything that stuck out in my mind would stick out in the reader's mind as well. So um, for the first draft, it was mostly just looking at pictures um, and trying to get the emotions from that. Um, but at living in the story, um, I think, didn't really change until I was revising it um, and went back and, and read parts and realized how hard that life was and how horribly hard it was. And I don't think I really realized that um, until that point. Um, and looking back on that time um, and that version of myself, I suddenly had so much compassion for her. And um, it changed a lot of the way that I feel about myself now, even, um, because that time always felt like an extreme failure. Um, for me, like I had, I had failed to give Mia the life that I wanted um, for her. I, you know, had failed at so many things uh, during that time, as far as just being a mother is concerned. Um, but I realized that through the editing and, and going deeper and deeper and deeper into the story, like, oh, that was actually really hard. Like, good job. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm so glad to hear you, like, as a reader, right, so when you read somebody's story like this, you feel invested. You, I feel like I know you in a way that I don't know you, right? Because mm -hmm. um, when you write memoir, you're sharing so much of yourself. Um, so I feel really glad for you that that's where you are. Um, certainly as a reader, what comes across is the powerful um, experience of being a mother and how much you just... Um, did absolutely everything you could to, to be there for Mia. Um, so it's really, it's, it's remarkable that, I'm glad that the, the writing process gave you some, some insight into that as well. Yeah, um, I, but I think it also, the writing process gave me permission to realize that I can't do that all the time. <laughs> like, I can't be there for her. Um, but, I think I always felt like I was never enough for her, and I could never be enough, and so I tried and tried and tried to be there for her as much as I could. Um, but I, I think in realizing that that's not a failure on my part, I also realized that it's okay to give myself permission to not be enough for her. Because I, as one person, like, and she's, you know, almost 12 now, like there's no way that I can be everything. So um, I've learned to ask for help with that, like making sure that she has people in her life that she can talk to and bounce off of and, um, and depend on uh, more than just me because I, I can't be there every moment of the day. No, and that part read is universal to me, right? So I'm a mother and I have a daughter of similar age and um, even though I've had a much easier go of it than you and I had my child surrounded by help in different ways, there's just a part of that in being a mom 
of wanting to give your child everything and knowing you can't. They yeah. have, they'll ultimately have to rely on others and rely on themselves. But say more about um, why it's so hard to ask for help. You wrote something in the book, and you, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation as well, but there was a piece in the book I wanted to make sure to ask you about, the idea that, um, that asking for help is hard. And at some point you wrote um, that it always seemed as though there were plenty of people who would need help more than you did, so that's a barrier to going to ask. Mm-hmm. But, um, and some of it obviously is that our system makes it really hard for people to ask for help in the ways that you've described. Um, but why do you think it's so hard to ask for help? I mean, you're kind of told not to over and over and over again through social media, through um, people talking about welfare recipients needing drug tests or, you know, trying to shame people. Um, you know, there's the... the narrative of the welfare queen or, or sitting on the couch eating bonbons all day or like all of these little taglines that we associate with people receiving government assistance um, and so it really seems like the general consensus is like uh, we're taking advantage of the system and we shouldn't be because we're not working hard enough um, and it goes back to you know the American myth of if you work hard, then you'll make it in this country. And that's just simply not true anymore. I mean, there, the wages, the healthcare system, like there is not enough to support the average worker um, and housing costs. I mean, there's so many things. But uh, I felt like not only was I a failure, but something inside of me was, you know, looking at my clients who were the same age as me, um, I felt like that was a failure on my part, that I wasn't in a house that big because I hadn't worked hard enough. Um, I didn't know about, like, all of these invisible cushions that people have, like parents who will put them through college or help them with a the down payment on the house or take care of their kids. Or there's so many things that um, I didn't even know about <laughs> right. that... Um, but to me, it was just like, I'm just not working hard enough. Like, because um, I was told to work over and over again. Right. And there's so much that's invisible about how we all receive government help, right? So if you grow up in a safer neighborhood, you're essentially benefiting from government help, right? And very right from the get-go, your life is easier because you have less stress. But we never really connect that as being government help, right? We don't think of it as government help, so you have to fill out a form to get it. Yeah. And yet we're all getting different versions of it. Yeah. Or in those situations, um, those people are entitled to that help because they have worked hard, because they have made it. Um, And a lot of the times it's not because of how much more work they're doing. It's just because they had a different starting point. Um, And so we're okay with giving to people who deserve it, but not people who are truly struggling because we think that they're not working. Exactly. And yet you managed to describe the, the houses you cleaned with so much empathy, right? And in a lot of ways, you tell your story through telling the story of these other people who sometimes you don't even know, but you do know because you've seen everything in their homes. Um, can you share one of the stories from um, a house that you felt like made it, 
made an impression on you that you've carried with you? Uh, boy, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I think I didn't realize um, that there was a possibility for sadness or um, stress or illness or anything if you had a house that big. Like, because I figured um, that you would have the ability to see a doctor, you'd be able to see a therapist, you'd go to the gym. Like, I just thought, like, when you have everything, then life could do you no wrong as far as, like, the little stressors, like um, a cold or, like, a sinus infection. Um, and there was one house in particular, uh, I call it the porn house in the book, uh, for reasons that you can imagine. Um, <laughs> um, but they were constantly sick, and they were. Uh, it seemed like they were hardly ever home, and I think that left an impression on me, um, because for me it was just like, how can you have a sinus infection? Like, couldn't you just like go to the doctor? And I mean, they had because they had antibiotics and all these medications all over the place. But I always associated um, Mia and I being sick because uh, we lived in con we lived in horrible housing conditions um, that made us that way, or that I was working all the time, or that she was in a really bad daycare. Um, so I don't know. That was one thing that kind of left an impression on me, I think, the most. Uh, really? Yeah. I mean, there are others, too, but um, realizing that people in nice houses could get a cold was, like, <laughs> was a big one for me. Right. And it seemed like there was also not only... Um, were they physically ill, but they were emotionally not necessarily well, right? You tell the story of their house as a story of a relationship that's broken, right? You, I mean, you talk about them, essentially the two partners not living in the same room. Yeah, they slept in separate places, um, at least some of the time. And, um, and I don't know if in that house particularly, but I, I saw a lot of prescriptions for... Uh, antidepressants and, and anti-anxiety or sleep aids or things like that. And um, for me, naively, I thought that was another thing that, that wouldn't touch you if, if you were happy and wealthy and, or at least much better off than I was. Um, you know, not in a way to shame mental illness or anything like that. But for me, it was just another thing a lot like the common cold that I thought wouldn't touch people in those situations. Right. We, you, we, we tend to think that material comfort will insulate us from so much that in fact is just part of the human condition or needs other help. Yeah. Yeah. So it was surprising to see a lot of prescription bottles and, and a lot of um, AIDS mm -hmm. to help get through the day. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of anonymity. That was what was also very surprising to me. I mean, you, you started our conversation by pointing out the loneliness of that year or that period of time and the sort of being surrounded, just the sort of the constant aloneness of being in somebody's house and taking care of their house but then never seeing them and going from there to school and then to homework. Um, I, do you think that loneliness is often a part of, like, how, how much do we generalize from your experience? Is, is loneliness a big part of of the experience of poverty? I think so. I think it's incredibly isolating. Um, I think many people do that as a defense mechanism. 
um, for themselves. The further they feel away from that situation or the possibility of it ever happening um, and kind of disassociate themselves with uh, anything similar, um, the less they believe that that could ever happen to them. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the social stigmas come from, um, like the using food stamps or the scene in the book where I'm using the WIC checks and, and upset everyone around me because I wanted a special kind of milk or something. Um, you know, you feel that on a daily basis. You feel how upset people are with you um, because they, again, feel like you don't deserve it or you're taking advantage, you're using their hard-earned tax money uh, or the money that they put towards taxes. Um, like I was personally using that to buy candy for my kid's stocking or something like that. There's, um, there's a lot of that. And so you do kind of want to hide. And you don't want to project out there that you're struggling um, because it comes with all of those stigmas and, and prejudices. Right. And it seems to me like that clearly compounds the challenges then also because um, you write about it in some very practical ways. You shopped at odd hours, right? Um, so it compounds the problem in very like specific, tangible ways, but it also then you also wrote about the trauma that you need to recover from and the sort of emotional pain of that that adds to all of the other um, pains that you need to work through. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I definitely didn't feel like I was a contributing member of society, but I started to get the feeling that I was in like the dregs of society, like um, someone who shouldn't even exist, really. Right. And cleaning houses went along with that, too. I mean, I felt like I was invisible at work. I was creating a situation where they couldn't even tell that I would be had been there, except for you know, the place was a little cleaner and smelled nice. Um, so I was constantly reminded of my invisibility. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's something I think um, it's, it's worth hearing from you about the moments of kindness also, right? I think those of us who haven't had that experience but want to be able to be helpful and supportive and generous of spirit with people who are struggling don't always know how to step out and do that. Um, but you did have some moments where, where people were, um, if not maybe as helpful as you might have needed them to be, at least did really treat you as somebody that they saw, right? Um, yeah. And talk more about some of those moments and what those mean for you or meant for you in that time. Um, to me, it was someone treating me like a human being, a fellow human being, like right. someone who was like them, uh, you know, and were able to empathize with my situation uh, and see that even a box of donuts was a huge treat for me and and would make my kid really happy and it wasn't something that I would necessarily get for myself. Um, so it, I had a lot of moments like that where it wasn't necessarily, um, I know you're having a really hard time and you wouldn't be able to get this anyway, but here, it was just a quiet, like, 
left for me on the counter or um, I even had a client once give me a hand-me-down bicycles and scooters and um, it was great it, you know it was just like take them if you need them if you don't I'm gonna take them to Goodwill um, but I wouldn't have been able to afford those things otherwise and I didn't need to come out and say that but it was still really nice just to have that gift right and there's a beautiful passage that you write about a snowstorm and you and and Mia like trekking through the snowstorm for a sled yeah yeah that took all day <laughs> it was like three blocks but the snow was like up right. to Mia's waist pretty much um so it made for a really fun adventure and a really fun day mm -hmm. and we got a sled so. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And your your bond with each other comes through in that story. And that like, you know, we we've all had those moments of of like, well, we if we have live on some place where there's winter, you have these <laughs> moments where you have a small child who's willing to bundle up and go into the snow, and yet it's a massive undertaking. Um, yeah, and both fun to bundle up and enjoy the the um, the storm when you get back, and also. Um, you know, just a moment of quiet in an otherwise challenging life. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that was when I decided to really start focusing on my writing as well. And the writing at that time was an online journal that I had. Um, and I think that day is what those moments that I had, those, like, moments of connection with her. And I knew that if I didn't record those in some way, they would eventually like drift away into like the outskirts of my memory. Um, so that was that became a meditative process, I think. Um, not only striving to have those moments and mm -hmm. striving to have something to write about in the 10 minutes a day that I was trying to keep myself accountable to, um, but also just in, in focusing on that time period or um, that activity or just that connection that I had with her um, because my life was so chaotic and everything felt like it was swirling around me all the time. Um, so I think um, having those moments with her kept me centered and present. Yeah. And, and didn't you, there was something that I'm not remembering well, unfortunately. Didn't you change the title of your online journal at that point? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I had it as like drama as literature for a long time. Uh, it was some class that I saw that the title of it was funny. Uh, but yeah, I changed it to Still Life with Mia. Um, and it stayed that way for quite a while. And was that blog available? Just it was out there public? Yeah. Um, I took down most of the posts or made them private um, so that they're not public anymore. Um, I did that when I started taking writing seriously in college because I thought like a real writer doesn't have a blog or <laughs> so, right. so I kind of like hid that and mm -hmm. pretended that it never happened. Um, but then it, you know, as my freelancing career was starting, I started writing entries for it again just to have some proof of my writing somewhere. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, but still life with Mia, like, it, it is really evocative, that moment in the book when you talk about um, that it was a shift for you mentally of, like, I'm going to embrace the positive moments that are here, and that'll fuel me forward. Yeah. That's how it comes across, anyway. Yeah, 
they weren't always positive moments, right. but Fair they enough. were moments, I don't know, I want to say like primal or, you know, just like the mother-daughter connection that, or mother-child connection that only you can have with your offspring. <laughs> uh, so there, you know, there were moments of hardship too and struggling and wants, um, but there, there were some positive ones too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate you making that clarification. Um, and that is how it comes across in the book. More about this innate, almost very difficult to put into words, bond. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Mia's a very strong-willed, stubborn, very incredibly smart child. And she has been that way uh, since she was born. I mean... I had to stay two steps in front of her mentally almost all the time, or she would just school me. <laughs> so, um, and that's hard when you're stressed and you're tired and you're exhausted and, and just cannot, you know, read another story at 8.30 at night. Um, so, so yeah, she's, she was a, I don't want to say handful, but uh, she was a challenge. <laughs> right, pushed you in all the ways that kids can do. Yeah. And has she read the book? She has not. She read a chapter of it. Um, I had a conversation with her before I left for New York because um, I had originally told her that once the book was out that she could read it. Um, and now I'm going to be gone for the next month, so she has to wait a little bit longer. Um, but I kind of want to be there with her. Um, to answer any questions. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the book, um, especially about my relationship with her dad, that could possibly um, change her relationship with her dad or change her relationship with herself or, you know, make her feel a little less valued. Um, and so I, I want to be there um, not only to reassure her, but just to answer any questions she might have. Right. Um, but I can imagine it's also going to be really weird for her to read a story about her that she didn't write. So um, I tried to be really mindful of that in writing the book. I didn't want to turn it into her story because um, that's not something that I can tell. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of things in there that she might be embarrassed for someone to read when she's, you know, 17 or 18 years old or dating or I don't know. Um, so, and I, I hope she likes it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. And, and she's at that age too, of where everything's self-conscious anyway, like entering into a period of time where you, yeah, you're figuring out who you are. Yeah. She's starting middle school next year and I feel for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, makes sense. Um, you know the, um, but it's but I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that piece because this book comes across so much as a story of motherhood, um, and um, and your relationship with her is really beautifully told in it. Thank you. Um, so, you know, um, we really have talked about all of the things that were on my mind as I was reading through this book. The ideas about um, empathy and. Um, how you maintain it, the ideas about how you maintain sort of um, 
uh, well, I hate, can't even use the word balance. Like I think of this book as so much about your struggle and like maintaining a, a way to look forward even as you are really stuck with having to balance so much in the present. Um, I'm curious if there are other themes that you would want us to want readers to take from from this book that you want to make sure that we can talk about here. Well, I, I mean, really, I I hope the book creates an air of compassion, and um, it's a timely story in that way, just because things in this country have gotten so much worse that people can empathize because my story is getting a little closer to home for a lot of people, um, especially with the government shut down right now and um, people struggling because they're not getting paid. Um, I think, I, I, I hope my story uh, allows a million other stories to be told. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that the book grabs people's attention and um, not only gets their attention, but gets them to listen because I am a white person from a privileged background. And so my story is, uh, is that way. So, uh, so my story is in that category, but I would love to see more come out from more adverse situations. Um, and I, I would hope that people listen to those. Yeah. Absolutely, as would I. And you know, and I also think um, there is a commonality here. There's, it's, I think it's really valuable to be able to see that somebody who, as you describe, is white and starts out in a suburban life can end up here. Um, so can any of us, right? But for any number of things that go right or wrong in our life, and to be able to make that point in a broad way, I feel like is very powerful, and hopefully can help to to help people to see themselves in the stories they read in the newspaper about the government shutdown, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, the, yeah, definitely. The more people realize that it could happen to anybody, like their neighbors or their aunts and uncles or nephews and nieces, you know, people who are close to you, um, it's pretty easy to lose everything and to suddenly find yourself without a home. Um, you know, so I would hope that the more people are having to reach out for help, the more compassionate we feel towards people who have been asking for help for a very long time. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I think this is really um, a wonderful, wonderful book, and I hope it does get all the attention that it deserves. Thanks for having this conversation. Yeah, thank you. This was great. <laughs>